The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. The 14th chapter of the book of John. We're working our way through this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the night of his arrest, only hours before his crucifixion, which would begin early the next morning. We've made our way in chapter 14 down to verse 16, and this morning we'll direct our attention to just two verses because they're so full and loaded of truth. We can't go any faster than these two verses. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 16. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Every generation of believers since the very first chapter of church history faces the challenge of theological clarity. In other words, there are nuances and details of doctrine that must be considered, evaluated, embraced, and articulated in every Christian's life. In our generation, we've seen a lot of these nuances that have to be clarified, a lot of these errors that have to be confronted. Battles over theological clarity, especially and most pointedly with the Godhead himself. The nature of God, the person of God, the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, God the Father has been attacked and belittled by the error of openness theology. Open theism, as it's called, which says that God is a learning individual. He's a learning entity who's just as helpless uh, uh, with what's happening now and in the future as we are. God the Son has been under attack. From the Jesus Seminar that questions his reality, his miracles, his words, Jesus had also, has also been belittled by those who disbelieve the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, who've actually said that to say God crucified Jesus on the cross, that it would please him to crush his son, that that's a form of cosmic child abuse. Well, those errors have been shot down very very pointedly and very, very accurately by so many theologians. They're hardly even worth a mention in a church like ours. But maybe the most common error of our generation has been the confusion over the Holy Spirit. The charismatic movement has given such confusing messages about who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is in a person's life. Tragically, the lunatic fringe of the charismatic movement has been um, attributing for years things to the Spirit of God that are not only non-biblical, but just plain weird. Speaking in gibberish, falling over and being slain in the Spirit. By the way, I don't know if you uh, read the papers recently, God is being sued by a person who was slain in the Spirit, split their head open, and now they're not suing the church, they're suing God. False healings, prophesying, which amounts little more to prophesying than to fortune-telling, even uncontrolled laughing, and as we saw beginning in Toronto, barking like dogs 
and attributing that to the work of the Spirit of God. Oh, it gets worse. I once saw some curriculum of a charismatic Sunday school literature for children designed specifically to teach kindergarten children how to speak in tongues. It's titled, I've Been Filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an eight-page coloring book complete with cartoons and fill-in-the-blanks. One page is a cartoon of a smiling weightlifter with a T, a T-shirt that says Spirit Man, and under him is printed 1 Corinthians 14, 4, he that speaks in an unknown tongue builds himself up. It gives little phrases for a child, a kindergartner, to, to recite and to memorize, to get them on the greased slide of speaking in tongues. One of them says to get the child to say this over and over, Bale odama ta la se ta nomo. Says if that's hard, teach them words they know that could be translated into the spirit's language. She came in a Honda, or say, I want a bow tie. And to say those over and over and over, and it will prime the soul to get ready to speak in tongues. Is this what we should expect from God the Spirit working in the souls of men? To have people laying in the aisles with cuts on their head from where he pushed them over? To have people laying in the aisles and barking and acting like dogs? To teach little children to say things they don't understand and to teach them that that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's very important that we have a clearly defined theology of the Spirit of God, a very very defined theology of the Holy Spirit. In a theological circles, that's called pneumatology, what we believe about the Holy Spirit. What the Bible teaches is clear about the Spirit of God. Now, in John's gospel, he has paid extra special attention to the Spirit from the very beginning all the way through the 14th chapter. Just a quick survey, in John chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, we find the Spirit descending on Jesus at his baptism. Jesus is also said to baptize in the Spirit. Unless we think that the Spirit looks like a dove, go back and read the text. It says it descended on him like a dove. In John chapter 3, verse 34, God gives the Holy Spirit without measure. In chapter 6, verse 63, the Spirit gives life. In chapter 7, verse 39, the Spirit will be given after Jesus' glorification, the first hint of what we're going to see today. In John 14, 17, 15, 26, 16, 13, he's known as the Spirit of truth. In John 14, 16 and 22, 22, 20, verse 22, he's called the Spirit that's holy, the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, 7, he's called the other helping presence. And here in the upper room, Jesus describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his disciples for a very specific and a very special and a very needed reason. He knows the disciples need to understand the help that they have access to after he leaves. He's been telling them for months now, especially in the previous week, the Son of Man is going to go up to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. He's going to be crucified. He will rise from the dead three days later, and ultimately he will ascend back to the Father. Here in the upper room, as the disciples continue to argue about who's the best, who's the greatest, who's going to sit where tomorrow, they actually were convinced that Jesus was about to set up the kingdom of God on the Temple Mount. Jesus tells them, I'm leaving. I'm leaving and I won't be returning. 
Now, he's not talking about the post-resurrection experience they would have with him. He's talking about the, after the ascension, he would be gone physically until he returns again to set up the kingdom. The disciples are confused. They are bewildered. They are uh, moving from the, the highest part of the mountain to the lowest part of the valley. They move from thinking, we're going to sit over those rascal scribes and Pharisees tomorrow. And why wouldn't they? I mean, look at the power they'd seen Jesus do. He'd already, earlier that week, gone in and owned the temple mount, turning over money tables and showing divinely uh, ordained anger that the people weren't honoring God. They'd seen him feed thousands of people with a single meal. All the power accessible to, to lead, all the power accessible to provide, I mean, you would want to be on his team as well, right? And they said, we are in that camp. We are skiing in that wake. We're going to sit beside him, and I want to sit closest to him so everybody knows I'm beside Jesus. In the middle of that, he says, I'm going away. They're thinking, you're going away? We're in Jerusalem. You have power. You can raise the dead. And he says, no, I'm going to go away. And then he says, and it's going to be for your good. They were troubled, confused, in trouble, feeling anticipations of longings they'd never felt before with the Lord himself saying he was going to leave them. But Jesus, in his profound pastoral care, his unbelievable selflessness, instead of thinking about the sufferings he was about to endure, kept his focus with them on their, their being equipped for when he leaves and even prays for them above himself. In these two simple verses, verses 16 and 17, we're going to find two dimensions of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us that Jesus leaves in instruction, he's going to come back to this at least four times in this, uh, in this passage of Scripture between now and in chapter 17. But for this morning, two dimensions of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. This is really, really good news. In the vernacular of the collegians I've worked with, this is really, really cool stuff. Two dimensions of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us. The first is in verse 16. He is our permanent abiding source of help. The Holy Spirit is our permanent abiding source of help. Look back at verse 16. He says, I, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you Forever. It's difficult for these men to fathom here at the Last Supper, but Jesus' departure is going to be for their benefit. They're going to get something better than Jesus' presence. Now, that's hard to even say, except Jesus said it. Now, how can he say that? Jesus, during his incarnation was on earth, was, was physical. He could be, he actually limited himself to be one place at one time being the omniscient, omnipresent God. God was in a body, walking in Galilee, in Judea, in Jerusalem. He could be with an isolated group of people. Even the thousands of people would be different than 
what he's promising here, the opportunity for people to have access to the Spirit of God worldwide, personally. Jesus now prays to the Father. He petitions to, for, for God the Father to provide another helping presence, literally, who is like Jesus. Now, don't miss the significance of this request by Jesus to the Father. He's asking for someone to take his place with the disciples when he leaves to the Father. Now, the question that you have to ask during the, the middle of this, this verse is, who could possibly take Jesus' place? Who could take God in flesh? Who could take his place? And the only answer is God, the Spirit. He's asking for someone who will always be within their reach. Think about this. Someone who will always be within the believer's reach. Someone who will always be ready to come to their assistance in their time of need. Someone to answer their questions, lead them in truth, show them the way to live, give them correction, solve their sorrows. Someone who would be as close and accessible to them as Jesus had been physically for the last three years. Now again, we just have to pull the car over and just, just think about what Jesus is doing here. He is on death row. Right now he knows Judas is going out and organizing a mob to come and arrest him. While that's happening out there, Jesus, in utter disregard for himself, puts all of his attention on the care of these disciples now and in the future. He's not looking at himself. I remember the first time that uh, we put our newborn son in the nursery. We were, Kim and I were at a church in Michigan, and um, it was, uh, I think it's probably a little bit traumatic for every parent who, who drops that baby off the first time in, in the nursery because their first thought is, there are germs in there. And there are, and your baby will bring them in as well. Our chief concern was that someone would, would look after him and care for him like we did. We didn't want to leave our baby in the hands of someone who cared for him any less than us. By the way, they did. And every nursery we've put our babies into since then has. And by the way, put your kid in the nursery. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. Why is this so important? We loved our son. And we wanted to entrust him to people who loved him as well. Jesus loved his men. And was only going to entrust them after his departure into the hands of someone who would care for and love them as equally as he could, and he didn't send an angel. He didn't send a pope. He sent a spirit. This is the first of several descriptions of the ministry of the Holy Spirit we're going to get in these next few chapters. Uh, here in 14, verses really 15 all the way through 21, we're going to come back to him in verses 25 to 27, and chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, and in chapter 16, verses 7 to 15. Those are all discourses devoted to the ministry and our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is very, very serious about the disciples understanding the help that they're going to have from the Spirit of God. In each of these passages, he is called the paraclete, the helper. It's a Greek word that means an advocate, someone who comes alongside, someone who encourages, someone who corrects. 
a counselor, a comforter, an advocate, a helper. Jesus is informing the disciples of the arrangements he has made for them during his physical absence. This is remarkable. These are remarkable reasons to worship the Son of God. That even in his darkest hour, he's looking for us in our darkest hour. I think it's kind of cool here. All members of the Trinity are in this passage. Jesus is praying to the Father about the Spirit. The entire Trinity is working together here. I love the simplicity of Don Carson's overview of this section. He says, The triune God makes himself present to the, present to the disciples of Jesus by the Spirit of truth. The understanding of the Trinity comes together in the Spirit's permanent abiding presence, both now and in the future. We as believers are kept and comforted by the force of Trinitarian concern. All three members of the Trinity are involved in this prayer for and application of and presence of the Spirit of God being with us in a permanent abiding fashion. It gets even better. He's our permanent abiding source of help. He's the comforter. We'll come back to that. Secondly, he's our permanent abiding source of truth. He is our permanent abiding source of truth. Look at verse 17. Who are we talking about? This Holy Spirit? That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Here we're introduced to the second name or the second designation of the Spirit of God that Jesus makes reference to, to the Holy Spirit. Here he's called the Spirit of truth. In verse 16, he's called the helper, the advocate, the one who is ever at our aid. Here he's called the Spirit of truth. What, what does this mean? Well, you can take it apart. It means he brings truth to men's hearts, especially about the person and the work of Christ. We'll see in chapter 16 that his main thrust, the main accent of the Spirit's ministry is to point the heart and the mind toward Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. John says later in a letter, listen, the Spirit is truth. He is the one who's going to cause the human soul to react to divine truth and accept it as God's truth. He's also the one who opens the heart to the received word, to the revealed, rather, word of God. We've all talked about, heard about, taught about, enjoyed reading about the doctrine of the illumination of the Spirit. It illumined to enlighten, to turn the light on. The Holy Spirit is the one who turns the light on in the human mind, in the human soul, to understand divine truth. He's the illuminator of Scripture. You remember what uh, Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It's the Spirit of God that gives understanding of the believing heart to the gospel. And only the Spirit of God. Look back at the text. It says, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. This is interesting because the disciples didn't see him either. They hadn't known him yet. 
But the key word here is cannot. The world cannot. Jesus says you will. You will understand the Spirit's power. You will understand the Spirit's presence. You will enjoy the ministry of the Spirit. But the world not only will not, but the world cannot. Here we discover the fundamental difference between the believers and the unbelievers in reference to the Spirit of God. Unbelievers not only have not been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, they will have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. He's the spirit of truth. The unbelieving world doesn't look to the Holy Spirit when it needs comfort, and the unbelieving world doesn't look to the Spirit when it needs to have truth defined. Think about it. An unbeliever will not be comforted by God's care and an understanding of God's providence because they do not honor verse 15. Back to verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's no love for God. There's no love for Christ. There's no appreciation of the Son of God being the substitute for sinners in his judgment. They don't understand. They can't understand. And because of that, they don't even want to enjoy the benefits of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. They will have nothing to do with him as the spirit of truth because, because God's word is, what does 1 Corinthians 1 tell us? It's foolishness to them. Paul actually gets sarcastic and says, let's talk about the, the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God that God would crucify his son and enliven the soul by the spirit. The foolishness of God is actually wiser than the wisdom of man. And he calls the gospel the foolishness of God. Years ago, I was preaching on that section, and, I, and the title of my section was The Foolishness of God, and I had someone before they heard the sermon come up and confront me and say, what are you talking about? God's wisdom is not foolishness. Just quoting Paul, just quoting Paul. Now we come to the subject of the Spirit's ministry in a very specific way. The Spirit is at work in the believer differently than he was or is in the the life of an unbeliever. Just for a moment, can we just kind of sneak at where we're going? Look over at chapter 16. We'll get here in a few weeks, Lord willing. Verse 5, Jesus comes back to the subject. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now we find out a little bit more about the disposition of the disciples. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Wow. Stop the presses. What is he talking about? For if I do not go away, the helper, the advocate, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict. Now we go back to the world. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak not only in his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Here it is. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it, disclose it to you. There it is, the Holy Spirit's ministry with the believer and the unbeliever. We'll get to get into that in more depth in just another chapter or so. 
But the point is this. The world does sense the invading presence of the Holy Spirit because there's, there's a conscience that's still alive. The Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 2, uses the conscience of men to keep them from being as bad as they could. And 1 Thessalonians says that in that time during, during the tribulation, God will actually take away that, that governing presence of the Spirit of God. He'll take that away, and man will actually become as bad as he could. That's the world. Back to the believer. Now we're coming into what has become a very lively debate in theological circles. What is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's a very healthy debate, as I said, among theologians about the difference between the Spirit's ministry in the individual believer in the Old Testament and the Spirit's ministry of the individual believer in the New Testament. Some take the radical notion that the prepositions in this verse, he was with you, he will be in you, are very descript. They're very descriptive of the ministry that then and now. And because of that, they say it was different with the Old Testament believer than it is the New Testament believer. Now, it was very different, but I'm not sure it's as different as we want to imagine. J.C. Ryle says, of course, we are not to suppose that the Holy Spirit did not dwell in the hearts of the Old Testament saints. But he was given with peculiar influence and power to believers in the New Testament dispensation when it came in. Ryle continues, no one ever served God acceptably from, from Abel downwards without the grace of the Holy Spirit John the Baptist was filled with him. It can only mean that he shall come with more fullness in the future, influence and grace and manifestation than he ever did before. Now we have to read very carefully here what what this verse says and what it it doesn't say because some people have gotten into into a lot of theological confusion and trouble here. They said, well, in the Old Testament, he was with them. It says it was with you. But in the New Testament, he'll be in you. And that's the indwelling. He was around us, but now he's in us. And the question we have to ask is, what's the difference? What does that mean? It's like the five-year-old who was watching um, an epic show on the Discovery Channel of the history of open-heart surgery, and when it showed those doctors around that man's chest asked his father, was that man a Christian? Well, I don't know, he said to the son. He said, well, I don't think he was because I'm looking at his heart and I don't see Jesus. Is that what the indwelling of the Spirit means? What does it mean that he indwells? Well, at first glance, it's easy to make too much of the distinction between the phrase with you and in you. That's par humen and en humen. Par with en, in. It looks like this new relationship with the Holy Spirit is, is being, as being in you is different, way different than being with you. However, look for a moment down at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode. It doesn't say in him. What does it say? With him. So Jesus is not making a major distinction between this in and this with. The point is that the Old Testament saint had to have some sort of, I don't know if you want to call it indwelling, the Permanent abiding presence is the best phrase I can come up with. 
permanent abiding presence of the Spirit of God with him, or we have a theological problem. How did that Old Testament saint ever obey God without the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life? And the answer is, without the Spirit of God, they would have done it out of the power of the flesh. Read Romans 6, 7, and 8 over and over and over. Paul says, no one has ever, no one will ever obey God out of the power of the flesh. So theologically, they had to have some encouraging, permanent, abiding presence to be with them. Now, I know what you're thinking and what you're saying, but what about the song we always sing? What about Psalm 51? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What does that mean? Well, if you read what's going on there in Psalm 51, David is not talking about the permanent abiding presence as a believer. He's saying, don't let what happened to Saul happen to me. Don't take your presence to lead the nation away from me in the way it happened with Saul. He does not want to see that power of the Spirit leave him in the way it did his predecessor. So, what's the difference? Listen, there is something radically and majorly different between the way the Holy Spirit indwelt the Old Testament believer and the way he indwells us. It's radically different. But don't make it so radical that we make those poor Old Testament saints obeyers of God out of the power of their flesh. That's, that's not a theologically sound position to land in. What is different? Well, we're going to see more and more in these next two chapters, but if I can get ahead of ourselves a little bit, you see this beginning in the day of Pentecost and in the book of Acts where the Spirit was given to those believers. And the Spirit was more alive because more alive to their understanding because they understood God's Word far better than they ever had. There was more of God's Word to interpret. There was more of God's law to be understood and corrected where they had applied it wrongly to say they could be saved by the law. Now they said they were trying to be sanctified by God's truth and God's law. The Holy Spirit is very different in the New Testament than the Old Testament. And the primary reason is because not all Israel was truly Israel. In other words, you can be born a Jew. No one is ever born a Christian. You can be born an Israelite. You can't be born a Christian. Paul says in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. In other words, not everyone who is born a Jew actually has faith in the God of the Jews. But everyone who is a part of the church is only there because of faith. And the Spirit indwells not only the individual believer, but the body of Christ in a way that he never did, the house of Israel. Now, that the Spirit would take up residence with the individual believer is is remarkable to me. I mean, you have to put this in context. Um, Remember when Solomon was dedicating the temple? Remember what he said in 1 Kings 8, verse 27? But God, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Like, no, no way, except maybe in this temple. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I've built. The greatness of Solomon's temple could not contain the Spirit of God, but the believing heart can and will. Ephesians 3.16. Now, this is, now we're going to get wonderfully confused in order to get clarity here, okay? This is going to get so Trinitarianly confusing that I just absolutely love it. Uh, Ephesians 3.16 
that God would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power, listen to this, through his spirit in the inner man. Okay, get this. You're going to be strengthened with power by the spirit in your inner man. Next verse. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So, so what is it? Is the spirit dwelling there or is Jesus dwelling there? Well, let me make it even more uh, um, uh, confusing for a second. Look down in chapter 14 of John, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, we're going to look at this next week, is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, watch this, and will disclose myself to him. I know what you're thinking. I hope you're thinking this. Wait a minute. Jesus is leaving, and the Spirit's coming. So it should be the Spirit coming but we're, I thought Jesus was in heaven. And we see in Ephesians, no, he's, he is dwelling in our hearts. Ah, it gets even one more step confusing. Acts chapter 16, verse 7. After they came uh, to Mysia, they were uh, trying to go to Bithynia. And the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Ah, it gets even worse. Philippians 1.19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers... And the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, if I can give you just one quick lesson in the Greek language, there's, there's a, there are prepositions called the genitive case. And uh, the, these passages are a little unclear. Is it when you say the Spirit of Jesus, does that talk about a spirit that Jesus possesses, namely the Holy Spirit? Or is it the Spirit of Jesus, him personally? Now, let me tell you. After considerable study, I don't know. But that's the wonder of the Trinity, isn't it? I love this confusion and quotation marks. I love it because it's God. I won't take any time. I don't, do, don't want to devote any time to uh, recent events in the evangelical um, greater circle um, some of you may have heard or not, or, or not about um, a recent argument, debate, uh, conversation that was had in a, in, a, in a conversation called The Elephant Room where T.D. Jakes was invited into a group in a circle of believing evangelicals and they talked about this issue. Modalism is, is God one person who manifests himself three ways, which is what Jake says, or is he three persons who's one God, which is the... Con- the uh, 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 classic understanding of the Trinity. And they kept debating on manifestations. Listen, God is not out there going, I'm going to show up as the Holy Spirit, then I'll show up as Jesus. Now I'm over here, the Father. He's not one just kind of manifesting himself in different places in different ways. He is one God with three persons. And I have thought and studied about that my whole Christian life. And if you want to ask me to define that for you, I'm not your guy. But one of the precious assurances of God's work in my heart is I get it and I don't get it. He's a trinity. Ask me to define that. I don't know that I can. But it makes sense somewhere in the depth of my soul. That's what's going on here. Is it the spirit of Jesus or the Holy Spirit? And the question is, why are we actually trying to divide this into such small nuances? Jesus said, I will disclose myself to you. 
And he says, I will do so through the Holy Spirit. Just take it. I love even, even uh, what John says in 1 John chapter 2 because he calls the Holy Spirit the advocate, the helper. My little children, 1 John 2, 1, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have a paraclete, a helper, an advocate, and he doesn't say the Holy Spirit here, with the Father, namely Jesus the righteous. So who's our paraclete? Who's our helper? Is it the Holy Spirit, or is it Jesus, or is it the Father who sins? And the answer is yes. We have an advocate in heaven, that's Jesus, an advocate with us, that's the Spirit of God. And please, please, I would beg you, please, please notice, underline, highlight, whatever you do in your Bible, that the Holy Spirit is a he, he is not an it, he's not a force, he's not a power, he's not this gas that kind of comes around the world, he's a person, he's a he. That's what he's called here. The world doesn't know him. He abides with you. He will be in you. That's going to become much more clear when we get into chapter 16. Now, what I'd like to do now very quickly is say, okay, that's fun theology to kind of play around with, but what are the implications for us privately, personally? And these are wonderful. This, this is enough to keep you up late at night thinking and dreaming and praying. First of all, we can and should know the presence of the Holy Spirit within us as believers. We can and we should know the presence of the Holy Spirit within us as believers. He creates, can I say the word, feelings of conviction, feelings of comfort, insight, discernment, desires for what's right and righteous that go contra our flesh. He causes us to want to do what's right. Romans 8 and 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Isn't that interesting? If you don't have the Holy Spirit, namely the Spirit of Christ, then you don't belong to him. We should enjoy, we should know the presence of the Spirit of God. Secondly, we should live as temples of the Holy Spirit. We should live as temples of the Holy Spirit. You know the passage very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And it bears me just reading through a few verses of this. In verse 12, Paul says to the Corinthians, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May, he, may it never be. Or you, do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. What he's saying is you have such solidarity with the spirit of God. This is almost impossible to fathom. What we do and experience 
places the Spirit of God in that experience with us. No, he doesn't sin, but he's ever-present to be convicting us of the sin that we're pursuing. So what's the conclusion? What's the conclusion to the Spirit's abiding presence with us? He says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Why? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. This is a a death blow to Neoplatonism, which makes this radical difference between the flesh and the spirit and the material and the immaterial. Paul says, no, your body is a temple where the Holy Spirit resides and abides with you permanently. And what you do in the body has an effect on the rest of the body and shows the lack of respect we have for the Spirit of God who indwells us. Thirdly, we should value the new ministry of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. We're going to get to this in chapter 16. I can't wait for this. One of the things that the Spirit does is He makes us one with one another in the body of Christ. He indwells the church differently than He did the nation of Israel. We can enjoy the body of Christ differently because of the Spirit's presence back and forth as he blesses himself and glorifies Christ between believers. Fourthly, we should develop a keen awareness of the Spirit's presence. We should develop a keen awareness of the Spirit's presence. Now let me state for the record, I do not believe that God speaks audibly to people today. He has spoken in his word, that's enough. However, when you feel those promptings in your heart to obey God and do what's right, that is the Spirit of God prompting and speaking to our hearts. That's his presence doing exactly what he promised to do, to convict, to comfort. Read Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go to death, you're there. If I go to heaven, you're there. You're everywhere. I can't go anywhere where you're not. You know, a big footnote to that is if you want to, the best antidote for sin, it's a good, healthy dose of the omnipresence of the Spirit of God. What's A.W. Tozer say? Every time a believer sins, in that moment, he becomes a practical atheist who says he believes in God, but who acts as if God doesn't exist. How differently we would live if we realized the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit who knows no darkness and no hiding places. And then fifthly, we would have to address this. We can find the help and comfort we need from the Spirit's presence. We can find the help and comfort we need from the Spirit's presence. Remember, the Spirit comes to be in the place of Jesus. In the place of his physical presence, he provides a spiritual presence, a helper, a paraclete to guide, help, and comfort. And this is such good news. When you find yourself in a trial, in a time of need, in a time of confusion, in a time of hurt, he is our helper. 
There are many places in the scripture where we're supposed to look to others for help. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to serve one another, encourage one another, lift one another. That's all absolutely appropriate. But I wonder sometimes if we don't look for the help of others before accessing the helper, the paraclete, the comfort, comforter, the advocate, the one who is with us and longs to minister to us. Do you enjoy the presence of the Spirit of God that Jesus prayed for and we possess? I hope so. You can come to the Lord for salvation from sin, from Satan, from self, and even salvation from God himself in judgment. And that's wonderful. But what we don't accent enough is the blessing that he will permanently abide with us in his spirit. You are never alone. Can I you to bow your heads for a moment? One of the best parts of the gospel is the good news that the spirit comes to be with us. And if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, you have no hope of his presence, his help, his comfort. Let me just remind you that everything you ever wanted is ultimately fulfilled in the right relationship that God has designed you for in Christ by receiving the gospel. And one of the benefits is you get his permanent abiding presence in his spirit. Father, use these words of Jesus to save some and to pull into your fold those who can enjoy you now and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.